You're listening to Bible Through the Year 2017, a weekly devotion to supplement the annual Bible reading plan for Cornerstone Baptist Church in Wiley, Texas. I'm Justin Wheeler. I'm the preaching pastor at Cornerstone, and we are almost done with our Bible Through the Year plan. We're in week 50, and this week we're going to be continuing to read in a few books. We're going to be Uh, finishing up the book of Romans. We're going to read chapters 11 through 16. We're going to finish up the book of Acts, reading chapters 20 through 28. And then we're going to read in their entirety three books. Um, The the letter of the Apostle Paul to the church in Colossae, the church in Ephesus, and then also this smaller letter of Philemon. Now, it's probably best that I go ahead and say that there is virtually no way that I can introduce all of these books or even mention Uh, the scope of the content that we're going to be reading this week because it's just so massive. Our reading this week contains five books covering an endless number of subjects, some of which are going to change the scope of eternity. I mean, there are dozens of cities that are covered in this latter portion of the book of Acts, and then there's Paul's trial that takes him all the way from Jerusalem uh, to Rome, and then all these different things in between. There's a shipwreck in there. There's several different pre-trial settings. There's just too much to cover. And then there's the book of Romans. I mean, we're in the practical end of the book of Romans where Paul is seeking to show us the impact that the gospel is to have on our lives and our homes and our churches and our city and even the world. And that's the, the pattern that Paul uses. He establishes doctrine on the front end of these letters, and then he shows how that doctrine affects our lives in very practical ways. Uh, we're also going to be reading the book of Philemon, which is really an amazing little book. It's a small letter, one of the smallest in the New Testament, but it's also one that makes a huge impact in that it shows us how the gospel affects all of our relationships. This book has an impact on race relationships and our understanding of slave-master relationships and just how provocative the gospel is when it begins to affect our lives and how we relate to other people. Uh, We're going to turn our attention to the book of Ephesians, which is a fascinating study in itself. We really get to see uh, basically the entire lifespan of a church when we look at the city of Ephesus. Uh, We see that in Acts chapter 19, uh, Paul came to the city of Ephesus. He found a group of disciples there, but these these folks knew nothing of the Holy Spirit who had come down at Pentecost. They had also not been baptized as followers of Jesus. They were baptized by John years before. And so Paul baptizes them. He lays hands on them so that they could receive the Holy Spirit. And this marked really the founding of the Christian church in Ephesus. But they got run out of town, and then Paul had to leave. So later in Acts chapter 20, Paul comes back to the city of Ephesus, and he, and he talks to these, uh, the elders of the church, and he warns them that they need to pay really careful attention to the congregation, and they need to pay really careful attention to themselves and to their own doctrine. Paul warned them in this way because he feared that, that some among them might stray from the truth and lead others astray. And it really seems that Paul's letter to the church is aimed at making sure that they hold on to the true doctrine of the gospel because this letter is filled with rich theology that pertains to the good news of salvation by faith in Christ. Now, if you continue to study 
Ephesus. You actually see later on in the Bible. You'll see in the letters that John wrote, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John. Many believe, myself included, that these letters were written to the city of Ephesus, to this particular church. And then later in the book of the Revelation, we see another letter from Jesus to the church in Ephesus. So we get this lifespan of a church when we look at this particular city. This week, we're also going to be reading Paul's letter to the church in Colossae, which is, again, it's one of the shortest of Paul's letters, but it's really, really, really exciting. In this letter, Paul is writing to a young church. They're just discovering what it means to be Christians, what it means to trust in and follow Christ. And they're, they're learning how their newfound faith interacts with the philosophies of the culture around them and really how it challenges their, their previous thinking about things. In chapters, well, in chapter 1, verses 15 through 20, we have this amazing passage, one of only four Christological hymns found in the New Testament. And in this hymn, we learn some of the clearest and most amazing teaching about Jesus, about his deity and his humanity. We learn about the, his involvement in the work of creation. We learn about how he rules over his church and his world. I mean, Jesus and his gospel are major themes in this letter. But coming in at a very close second is the theme of warning for the church. This is a church filled with new believers, and that means that everything is new to them. And one of the main reasons Paul is writing to them is to warn the church and protect the church from false teaching that was creeping in, not just to their church, but others, the church of Ephesus as well. So that's a little bit of an introduction to what we'll be reading this week, but let's take our our focus and, and bring it down to something that we can discuss And I want us to talk about, well, I want us to talk about the book of Acts. When we first started reading the book of Acts a few weeks ago, uh, the scene of the book was quite a bit different than what we see here in this week and on into chapter 28. At the beginning of the book, it was a very small crowd of Christ's followers, 11 apostles, right? Uh, Mary was there, Jesus' mother, as well as James and Jude, Jesus' brother. And they were together with a group of people numbering 120 total. And they were in Jerusalem. Jesus had left. He had given them this charge, go and make disciples in my name, preaching the good news of the kingdom. He tells them in the, at the beginning of the book of Acts, you're going to be my witnesses from Jerusalem to Judea and then Samaria and then into every corner of the earth. And here's this 120 people just in this room waiting because Jesus told them something else. Jesus told them he was going to give them the power they needed to accomplish that mission. And in Acts chapter 2, we read about how that happened. God sent his Holy Spirit who empowered the apostles and the followers of Christ to preach the gospel with boldness and power. And we even see in Acts chapter 2 that after Peter's sermon, this group of 120 swelled to 3,000 Jews who believed and the church in Jerusalem was born. And then later on, you just continue to read, in Acts chapter 8, things got bad because the, the animosity of the Jews for these Christians in the city of Jerusalem, it, it hits a boiling point. And in Acts chapter 8, the message of Christ is it's going to go spreading throughout the region. They had already begun to preach the gospel in Judea, but now they're preaching the gospel into Samaria, and the message of Christ is just going forth. 
And then the Apostle Paul is converted to Christ, and, and he's called by Jesus to be the Apostle to the Gentiles. Some things happen with Peter, and Peter begins to preach the gospel even to the Gentiles, and the gospel spreads. And all of this is a fulfillment of a promise that God made to Abraham way back in Genesis chapters 12 and 15 and 17. God promised Abraham that through his seed, all the nations of the earth were going to be blessed. And Paul obeyed the call of Christ under the power of the Spirit. The other apostles and disciples obeyed the call of Christ under the power of the Holy Spirit. And they go out into the world with a fearless passion, taking the gospel in, into these cities. And, and, the, and Paul especially takes the gospel into the Roman Empire. Now he's very careful. He goes to the Jew first. He goes into these synagogues first. But then he preaches the gospel to the Greeks, to the Gentiles as well. Now during Paul's ministry, we... We see what he sees. He, he sees the heart of Jews becoming hardened to the good news of the Messiah. The long-awaited one who had come and fulfilled his purpose for atoning for the sin of his people through his death. Some people love this message. And this message is going out. But some people love it. Some people don't. In some cases, we see the message of Christ uniting the people of God together with people from other nations. But, but that's not all we see happening. Sometimes, a lot of times, we see the gospel becoming a source of division. Now, have you ever wondered why some people can hear the same message on the same day, preached by the same man, on the same subject, but those people can come away with very different opinions? We see that throughout the book of Acts. In all of these cities that Paul goes to, he preaches the gospel and some believe, but he preaches the gospel and some others get angry. Now we do know this. We know that it is the plan of God to create one people from all the different nations of the world. We even get a picture of that in the Revelation where all of the people of God are surrounding the throne of God and there are people from every tribe and tongue and, and nation. Now we know that's the purpose. God wants to bring them all together, us all together into one people, one nation under the banner of Christ. And the New Testament writers refer to this as the, the manifold wisdom of God. That, that, that he would unite all people and reconcile all things to himself through Jesus and the gospel. So we know that the gospel is, is unifying. But we also know that the gospel has another purpose. Jesus even talked about this in Matthew chapter 10. He says, I have not come to bring peace but a sword. The ultimate reality of the gospel not only unites God's creation, but it also divides mankind. Jesus mentions this in Mark 16. He says to, to his disciples, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever did not believe, well, they will be condemned. Now, one of the things that the book of Acts presses home to us, uh, in addition to the fact that the gospel is spreading, is the fact that the gospel not only brings unity, but the gospel also brings division. The cross of Christ and the good news that there is salvation in no other name but Jesus is the ultimate dividing line in both this life and in the life that is to come. Now, there are, there are other divisions in this world as well. But in the end, this is the only one that will matter because everything, everything hinges on the gospel. So that's, that's a lot to think about. That's a lot to discuss. So here are a few questions to help you 
discuss this with your family, your children, your, your co-workers, your small group. How is the gospel bringing people together today? How is the gospel serving that unifying purpose in the world? And, and how is that unifying purpose unique? But also ask this question, how is the gospel bringing division today? And then ask yourself this question, how can you, how can we as Christians be more equipped to engage the world with the truth of the gospel? Next, let's turn our attention to something we can meditate on. And this week I want us to meditate on what I consider to be one of the most important passages in the book of Colossians, or for that matter, the entire New Testament. And it comes from Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. It's that passage I mentioned earlier in the introduction, and I'll read it for you here. In Colossians 1.15, it says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. Now, most scholars agree that this passage is, probably deserves to be called a poem or a hymn. Um, and you can see how this might serve that purpose, right? This passage is structured somewhat like a hymn. There are repetitive phrases in this passage. There are also you know, various themes that break this passage up. There's the theme of creation and the theme of authority and the theme of redemption and the theme of unity or reconciliation. And it, this kind of divides the hymn up. And if this hymn, if it is a hymn, it, it's really one of the most important hymns ever sung because this hymn reveals amazing, awesome things about Jesus. When we come to a passage like this, it really demands something of us. It demands that we slow down and it demands that we think. And I really believe that's what Paul wants us to do. He wants us to know these amazing things about Jesus. And the first thing he wants us to know about Jesus is that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Now the word here for image is a Greek term, icon, and it's the term that we get our English word icon from. An icon is something that looks like or represents something else, but it's not just a word that stands out here. It's the entire phrase. Jesus is not just an icon. He's not just an image. He is the image of the invisible God. If you want to know who God is, if you want to know what God is like, if you want to understand how God behaves and how He cares and how He feels and how He responds, then you need to look at Jesus. If you want to see the invisible God in the flesh, then look to Jesus. The, the New Living Translation uh, translates this phrase, He is the visible image of the invisible God. Now, according to John 1, 18, no one has ever seen God, but the unique one who is himself God and who is near to the Father's heart, he has revealed God to us. Jesus is 
the image of God. Now, in Genesis chapter 1, we read that man was made in the image of God, but Jesus is the image of God that we were fashioned from. From all eternity, Jesus has been the perfect image, the perfect reflection of the Father's being and nature. So when Jesus came onto the scene 2,000 years ago, it was as if God was stepping out from behind the curtain for all the world to see. And when Jesus came, he did some amazing things that show us the, the nature and person of God. He healed the sick. He gave sight to the blind. He made men who were crippled stand up and walk again. He turned water into wine. He turned a small meal into a feast for thousands. And he did that one twice. He walked on water. He commanded the obedience of the sea and the wind and the storms. He cast out demons. He commanded them to go wherever he wanted them to go. He called three people back from the, the dead. And, and, and when he called, they came. I mean, Jesus shows us something about God. He shows us that God is powerful. There is nothing our God cannot do. At the same time, Jesus shows us that God is full of compassion. I mean, think about what you see as you have read through the, the Gospels. Jesus cares about people. He doesn't embrace the celebrity status that everyone, including the disciples, wanted to give him. When he goes into a town, he weeps over the lostness of people. And he doesn't just weep over the people who love him. He even weeps over the people who don't love him. When, when, when blind beggars cry out to Jesus, he goes to them. He heals them while everyone else simply ignores them. When the social outcasts come to him, he doesn't shoo them away like everyone else. He, he doesn't walk on the other side of the road when lepers come his way. He looks those people in the eye. He reaches down and he touches them. He helps them. He touched the leper without hesitation. He ignored the threats of the Pharisees, and he healed people on the Sabbath. I mean, what we see is that Jesus meets people in the midst of their suffering, and he shows them the compassion of God. God is compassionate. God is powerful. God is compassionate, but also God is loving. Jesus shows us the love of God. In John 15, we read that no one has greater love than this, than one lays down his life for his friends. I mean, Jesus allowed himself to die. He willingly died. And the reason he willingly laid down his life was on account of his love. Jesus makes it clear to us that God loves. If you ever doubt that the God of creation loves sinners like you, like me, <laughs> then look no further than to Jesus and the lengths that he went to show us his love. In in. 1 John 4, verse 9, it says, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. See, Jesus shows us the power of God, the compassion of God, the sacrificial love of God, but there's really so much more in this hymn. Jesus is, according to Hebrews 1.3, the radiance of the glory of God. He is the exact imprint of His nature. Now, this is something that we can spend all day, perhaps all week, meditating on. So let's do that. Let's meditate on the reality that the heavens declare the handiwork of God. The earth shows us the beauty that makes us long for God. But Jesus shows us the image of God. Finally, let's turn our attention to something we can pray about. And to do this, let's focus on the book of Ephesians. And in this book, 
Paul is really trying to help us grasp the deep things of God. I mean, there are, there are deep truths in this book, amazing truths, but, but these deep truths are not just meant to rest on our minds as something we can think about. They're really meant to shape the way we live. John Stott wrote a commentary on this book years ago, and he titled it, God's New Society. And this is a great title because in this book, God wants us to, to, to see how the gospel of Jesus Christ in all of its beautiful theological truth, how it is meant to work in the world to create a whole new humanity. From every tribe, tongue, and nation of the world, God is creating a people, and he's calling us together under the banner of Christ. Now, I'm going to quote something here. Ray Ortland who's a pastor at Emanuel Church in Nashville, he writes this. He said, At Emanuel, we love to say that gospel doctrine creates gospel culture. And he goes on and he says, and this is what Ephesians is all about. This wonderful letter from Paul teaches gospel doctrine in chapters 1 through chapters 3, uh, or at least 3 verse 13, and in order to create the gospel culture that is talked about in chapter 4 all the way through the end of chapter 6. But you will notice that Ray has left out chapter 3, verses 14 through 21. In that section, the in-between of the gospel doctrine and the gospel culture is this section on prayer, and that is significant. Building gospel culture is not as simple as just deciding that we accept gospel doctrine. But more profoundly, we pray our way from gospel doctrine to gospel culture. A vibrant, beautiful community in Jesus is a living miracle in this world of exhaustion and aloofness and superiority and conflict. And so the link between the doctrine and the culture is dependent prayer as we lean into God, call upon His power for our weakness, and give Him alone all the glory. And that's a wonderful quote and such a helpful way to look at this book. So let's be sure to spend some time this week in prayer. Not simply that we can understand what we're reading, but that we would be shaped by what we're reading. Let's pray that God would develop in us gospel hearts, gospel lives, and gospel culture. Now, if you want to learn more about Cornerstone Baptist Church, you can find us online at cornerstonewiley.org. You can follow us on Twitter or Instagram at CBC Wiley. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash cornerstone Wiley. You can also subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or Google Play to stay up to date on all the new content. Now, thanks for listening.